Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we have some exciting news, man. You excited for this weekend? Super excited. Uh, you, you don't sound excited. No, I, I, I legitimately am excited. I, <laughs> I'm not good at putting the proper inflection in my voice. <laughs> don't judge me based on how I sound. Uh, I am legitimately excited about what we have on tap for this weekend. It is going to be dope. Tell the people what we're up to. Did you say on tap? Yes. Like you were trying to make a pun, but it's like kind of bad. My puns come, come almost subconsciously. Like I, I don't yeah. mean to do them, but I know what we're about to talk about. So it probably weaseled its way into my vocabulary. That's a, a pretty good excuse. Because then even if you flop, you're just like, oh, it's my subconscious. It wasn't even me. Anyway. Love that plausible deniability. Right. Uh, so this weekend, Red Bull, untapped, finals. Uh, I will talk about the details it, about that in a sec. But first, I want to talk about how we are going to be hosting a viewer watch party. And then we're also going to be doing a round of commentary. So uh, we'll be streaming from twitch.tv slash arena decklists. And then uh, there will be a lot of other watch parties and viewer parties going on. And then there will be official commentary business happening from the Red Bull Twitch pages and the Magic Twitch pages. Yep. This is kind of a, a different approach to coverage of an event being split up amongst a bunch of channels and then having the main channel on top of it. So hang out in all of them. Get that multi-Twitch going. Uh, support everyone. We're working with an awesome group of casters, and there's just like a tremendous amount of casting talent being deployed to this show so it's going to be really fun to see everyone bring their own style to the different rounds i think we're doing what the quarterfinals is that right correct nice yeah so we'll be in the elimination rounds high stakes matches being played and and the red bull tournament in general is like pretty high stakes for the present world obviously it's like outside the old pt type structure but the money is very real and also I think you can request to be paid in cans of Red Bull. So you could just like back a Red Bull truck up to your house and that would be really excited. Dude, they didn't, well, maybe I can't take my commentary pay in Red Bull, but I would, I would. You definitely should have brought up the topic because you do consume the most Red Bull of any shh, human I've ever met. Shh, don't tell them that. How, how does it feel to like, I know when I'm shilling, like when I'm doing an SCG show, I, in general, I, I will not shill a product that I don't have some belief in. So like when I tell you I am comfortable in my Carnox gaming chair, I do mean that, but it doesn't have the same connection to me. At home, I frankly don't sit in a Carnox gaming chair, but I do drink a bunch of Red Bull and uh, Red Bull Purple is my beverage of choice. So how does it feel for you to be shilling for something that you actually believe in? You say that like I shill for a bunch of stuff that I don't believe in. (laughs) Well, I do think we do a good job. You're subconscious again there, huh, Brian? Yeah, I guess so. We we try and do a good job of like only taking the opportunities we actually support the products of. So I'll give you credit for that. That's why we currently don't have sponsors, man. True. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, I am excited. I like working with Red Bull and Tournament Center EU. It's just been a pleasure to work with them every single time. And obviously I do enjoy a a Red Bull occasionally because I'm supposed to only drink, you know, two to three cans a week or whatever the recommended thing is. Don't tell them. But if nothing else, if y'all could do me a personal favor, this solid and just show up and put me on that path to getting the Red Bull sponsorship, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, that is what this weekend is all about. Mission to get Jerry on the Red Bull sponsorship. 
I got I got dreams, you know. I don't have a lot of dreams. This is this is one of my dreams, though, y'all. I need. We've help. talked about this for a long time now. I, this has been floating around the podcast for what feels like years. Our desire to get you aligned with Red Bull, and this is this is the closest we've come. So we're making progress. Baby steps, man. Baby steps. Right. You know, right. I'm doing a little hustling. You know, trying to work my way in there, trying to do a good job. And I think that if it was like. I don't know. Some other company was like, hey, do you want to cast this weekend? I would have probably been like, nah, but it's Red Bull. I, I can confirm that because it has been a long time since you and I casted together. I've worked with a bunch of other partners in that time, all of whom I love, but I'm excited to get back into the booth with you for a little while. It'll be fun. Yeah. So uh, actual details for the event for people who don't know. I know that it's, it's kind of weird. Uh, I'm not sure whose OP is like more convoluted Red Bulls or just the official Wizards one because there was just like a bunch of series of qualifiers and they kind of had like different branding for a lot of this stuff. But basically they ran a bunch of qualifiers that feeds into this. This is this is the actual like world finals. This is 16 players. We know who they are. There's a, a lot of like very good Magic players, a lot of good names in there. And the tournament is half historic and half standard. And there are $75,000 in prizes, including uh, 30K for first. So, like, it is it is big stakes. Absolutely. Near Pro Tour stakes. I mean, bigger than the last PT that Wizards put on. So, the money's there, no question. Yeah, big game. And, I mean, it's kind of similar to the league play, right? Where it's like, this is going to be a small format. You don't know how much this is actually going to influence any metagame. But it's maybe going to produce more real results because coming in, like these players don't have any read on any specific metagame, right? I think like the discourse going into the league weekend was very clearly about Urian and the players, at least in MPL, like definitely know each other and know the players' preferences and like could make predictions based on what they thought people were going to show up with and whatever. And this is kind of just like an open tournament, you know, like a lot of these players probably don't know each other. I think especially when it comes to historic, historic really hasn't had a galvanizing event since the evolution of the format and the addition of some new cards. So really interesting to take a first look at that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'd be excited for the results of this tournament, no matter what, but instead we're going to be watching, we're going to be hanging out. Tournament center gave us a bunch of cool stuff to give away to So we have to figure out how to do a bunch of giveaways on our channel and everything. And it's, it's good stuff. So definitely, you know, tune in, show up, watch i mean we're we're gas y'all know that because you're listening to this right so it'll be a good time yeah and when we bribe you with free stuff you're super incentivized to come listen to us so yeah and i mean if you think that the event is boring and you don't want to watch that means that a lot of other people are probably going to think like that and then there's not going to be a lot of people there so your odds of getting free stuff are pretty high good point right that's that's some weird roundabout logic and i hope that everyone shows up it'd be great Anyway, aside from that, which is happening this Sunday, by the way, and I'll be like tweeting out explicit details as far as like when we're going live and whatnot when I figured that out because time zones are strange and there's no way that I could get up at like 3 a.m. to cover this tournament or whatever. But yeah, there's also daylight savings time this weekend, which complicates things. And Europe has already had their daylight savings time. So we'll be carefully trying to figure out exactly when we're going live. But as soon as we know, we will make sure you all have links and are able to find us. Yeah, I have to pull out like the big whiteboard and start doing a bunch of complex math. Right. So I have to figure my, out my, my abacus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Uh, other than that, we had the results of the MPL and Rivals League play stuff. I wrote an article this week about how Urian is not dead because it's it's bizarre, man. Magic Discourse is so bizarre. Going into it, it was like, oh, Urian's the only deck in the format. It's unbeatable. And then just after day one of the tournament, it's like, oh, Urian's trash. It's unplayable. You're saying there's hyperbole being used and dramatic overstatements? and Dude, it's it's not even that. It's just like, how did you go from like hardcore, you know, this is your stance on the format to just doing a complete 180 in like six seconds? Yeah. So Austin Yost termed this the the Brian effect over on Twitter. He said that I am responsible for hyping a deck immediately and then finding out it's trash. So the last time was with Dance of the Mance at Throne of Eldraine week one. And he said, uh, I have done it again here with Urien. But I, I think Austin is off base here for a few reasons. Dude, the you first were, you, being, <laughs> go, you ahead, go ahead. You weren't responsible for Azorius, man. I, I that, agree. And if you that, look at the players who played Selesnia, they did well. They, right. they had both had winning records in this tournament and did just fine with the deck I proposed. And by the way, I spent the last two weeks telling people, don't play 80 cards in your Urian deck. It's strictly a mistake. Every single person who played Azorius played 80 cards. Everyone. Everyone. So nobody listened to me. I, I just don't think I can bear responsibility for this one because this comes around to the point I really want to make here. And I've been making it for the last few weeks. I'm going to keep harping on it because I think it's something that's very important to our collective understanding of metagames. And that is our tendency to treat decks like monoliths. We are now making declarations, and it goes beyond treating a deck like a monolith in this instance. We're treating a card like a monolith. We're saying all decks that are ready to show up with Urian in tow are garbage. We were fools. How did we ever get tricked by this garbage card? Of course that isn't the case. That's so far from the case. It's not even funny because there's a very clear instance of a deck with Urian doing very well in this particular event, but also there's so many ways to build these decks. And I just think that the people who showed up for this tournament didn't properly account for metagame adjustment. They did a bad job building their decks. And that's not to criticize them specifically because we all have tournaments where we miss the mark. We figure out the wrong oh, thing I, to I focus did. on. I, I don't did. believe you. You're a liar. <laughs> we, I, I think, we have plenty of them. I think I had like you know, 1% of tournaments were at the end of it. I was like, I think I made a lot of good decisions. Sure. That's, that's generally the success ratios we deal with in magic. It's really hard to get it right. And I'm certainly not excluding myself from this equation, because if you want to listen to me last week, I go and tell you how I don't see Rakdos as a playable deck anymore. And then it very easily crushes this event. So it just goes to show that like, we can all be forced into the wrong conclusions. And I think the Azorius, or excuse me, the Urian decks that showed up for this event, with the exception of Jacob Wilson, Matt Nass, who played the Slesnia versions, the wrong version of the deck got brought to the table. It was built poorly. It wasn't optimizing what Urian is actually good at. And to treat it like Urian is gone is a very, very silly thing to do. Do I think like Azorius Urian is still a great choice for this weekend? No, not at all. I think the deck has I, to I be do. some refining. Okay, so see right there, we've already split. There's reasonable minds that can disagree. Why don't you take over then and talk for a while about how you think the Azorius decks were misbuilt and how you would rebuild it to get to a place where it is a good choice for this weekend. All right, the narrative, as I laid out in my article this week on StarCityGames.com, was that I understand the rationale and motivations of the players that registered Urian. 
and I understand why their decks were built the way that they were. This is what I believe was going through their mind. And keep in mind, like decks were submitted like a week before the tournament too. So like sure, this was, point. you know, this was like a few days before people had time to like go through the motions and whatever. But even even on like Thursday leading into the tournament, like the discourse was still there of like, oh yeah, Urian's busted, nothing we can do. And that was like a week. It was a week of that where people were just like, yeah, like this is the only deck in, in standard. This is the only deck to play. So naturally going into the tournament, you're like, well, a lot of people are probably going to play Urian. I'm going to have to beat it. And what a lot of players did was add counter spells to their Urian decks. And I did that a little bit. I was like, okay, you know, play some essence scatters, whatever. But I was still playing 60 because the 80 card decks, you just have to fit in so many mopey cards, like all the charming princes and barons and Thassa and stuff like that. Like these are just cards that you never want to draw. And card that I do want to draw is Urian. I want to cast that on turn five, basically every yep. game. Yep. And I think there is merit to like the Abzan ones or the Esper ones. Like you go a little deeper, you have three colors, you play more of a longer game and you don't mind paying eight total for a Urian just to make sure that you always have access to it. But like if you play with the 60 card Azorius Urian decks, you will see a dramatic difference in like how just like clean they play out versus the 80 card ones. So I think the players who registered like Demir and registered uh, Rule Adventures all kind of came to the same conclusions as the Urian players. They just did it in a different way. And because the Urian players were so focused on beating the mirror match, they just didn't really account for a whole lot of anything else because like Gruel wasn't really on the radar and Rogues was good, but it, there weren't like a lot of people playing it or hyping it or anything. And I, I think it's completely reasonable for all the people to come to those conclusions. It just so happens that, you know, a lot of the people that would have normally played Urian played Rogues or some other deck that beat Urian. And then they just had a bunch of like, I don't know, neutralizes in their deck, which are not good against anyone, you know? Yeah, I I don't know. It, it seems like when you're considering the quality of players involved in these events, you have to give some credit, right? Like. We were here last week talking about how we were high on rogues, how we were high on gruel. It wasn't like these were outlandish conclusions where nobody saw these decks coming. They they were there. They were kind of obvious as a response. I think rogues in particular is a very obvious response to what Urian has been doing. And like, so my Selesnia deck last week changed dramatically to account for rogues. And I think I did a nice job of that. And I, I think you can do a nice job of that, particularly in the Selesnia colors, but the same adjustments didn't quite get made. And maybe it's a side effect of what we've dealt with over the last few months to a year, where the goal of magic has been to find the best thing, maximize that best thing, get an edge against the best thing while you continue to do the best thing. It's, it's just how we've played for about a year now. And to have an actual format capable of churn and capable of metagame rotation is very, very different from what we've been doing. And I think the decision to play like a Urian-less tune for the mirror smacks a little bit of what we've been through over the last year of just maximizing this really broken interaction. Yeah, and there there are other options now. And I, I yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened. I don't know if people were like, well, you know, instead of putting neutralize in our deck, maybe we should explore other options, right? But like the, the discourse was very much Urian is the only deck. And... Maybe players just got like a little bit too caught up in that. But I, I'm not saying that 
there weren't poor decisions being made. I just understand how the players maybe got to those decisions. And I don't think that the poor result from Azorius as a whole is indicative of Yuri and the strategy being bad. Agree. And there's just so many paths to take Yurian down. Even if even if you wanted to throw Azorius out, I, I don't think that means you get to discount Yurian, particularly because this, the matchup spread for something like Selesnya or even these oddball versions which are starting to crop, crop up, be they Jeskai, Esper. Uh, I know Sam Black was talking about like a Mardu Yurian list that he was pretty high on. There's many, many ways to take this deck and the matchup spread is not consistent across these different versions. They all do no. very different things. Yep. Agree completely. But I'm not like contrarian or whatever most of the time, but I saw the complete 180 in discourse and I saw the deck list and I was like, Ooh, these, these look not great, especially against, you know, 30% rogues in the field. And then you look at the results of the tournament after the fact. And it's just like, yeah, obviously these urine decks got smashed. So then I kind of just went back to the drawing board and I was like, is this like, is the deck actually that bad? Because I was beating these decks a week ago, right. you know, and it doesn't seem like much has changed. So I went back to the drawing board, built 60 card urine, uh, wrote about my card choices, sideboarding guide, all that stuff, like played it a decent amount on ladder and was still winning. I don't know. It's weird. Like, people talk about how uh, the decks specifically in that tournament are not meant to be played on ladder. And I agree with that because they're heavily metagamed for certain things. And maybe some of those things pan out, some of those don't. But like a lot of that shouldn't translate into the real world. But then if everyone copies the deck list from that tournament, then it does translate. Right. It doesn't matter whether it's correct or not. It's still happening. Right. So for the most part, I was playing in like the same field. Like that is kind of the result of what happened is like people were just playing, you know, the... Pantheon Shark Rogue deck or the best performing Luris deck and like played against a lot of Gruul adventures and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess this is just reality, even though it should be whatever. Yeah. Interesting phenomenon to be sure. Not a new one. We certainly know decks that do well in high profile events tend to get overrated and uh, overrepresented, especially on ladders. So I'm not surprised to see that for my part, despite kind of thinking I was destined to give it up. Went back to Selesnia this week, and I, I just did it again. That's so funny. Remember the subconscious puns we talked about? Give it up? No, I said I, I was destined to give it up because destined. the card I went back to this week was Destiny Spinner. No. Yes. And Destiny How? Spinner. Why? Destiny Spinner has been great. Absolutely great against these rogue decks that are trying to punish you for spending all your mana on a turn-to-turn basis. I've been very happy playing Destiny Spinner out of the sideboard, and I'm finding success against the Zorius Yuri Index, too, because they set themselves up to be counterspell-focused, and it was very easy to play around their game plans with the addition of Sorcerer's Spyglass and Destiny Spinner. I always resolve my Urian. I get to reset it to what I need to, and I, I've been crushing both Rogues and Azorius Urian on the ladder. Now, other matchups have gotten worse. I, I think rule is, like, problematic. You really aren't set up well for ember cleaves but you can adjust to that too and you can keep bringing decks around so i am just disappointed to see how quickly everyone wants to dismiss these decks when there's so many moves to make and even if you reject that move you don't like destiny spinner that's fine but you saw that matt and jacob also evolved the deck they added cultivate they had ugin in the list which was very strange to me since ugin is like the card i feel the most and 
kind of blows up my battlefield, but obviously it's powerful enough that you can make it work in certain scenarios. And they wanted to go further over the top of stuff and they both played the deck to a very strong record. So there's unquestionably ways you can continue to evolve all these archetypes. I like Cultivate. It was a card I tried. My experience was basically like I needed something in the two or three slot that, you know, gave like a little bit of velocity. And if you could blink it, even even better and that's you know i think your initial list had like two land or visionaries or something and we qu- quickly went up to four and yep. we we're basically just looking for like more of that effect and just like golden egg is the perfect card yeah and i played a couple golden eggs this week i thought they were good i thought I, it was a good I th- I th- dude just play four it's like you're you're a food deck you have golden or you have wicked wolf and trailer crumbs and gilded goose and it's your fake omen of the sea to blink with urine and everything like the card is just good my list feels tight at this point where I, I don't know what I would be replacing and there's not cards I currently have that I want fewer copies of. Like I don't have Omen of the Sun or nonsense like that in my deck anymore. Omen so, of the Hunt? What about that I, one? <laughs> I, I don't have Omen of the Hunt either. I have I have no omens. Um, so I, I'm not finding the cut I need to to get to four copies, but the two copies have been absolutely fine. And if I had a card I wanted fewer copies of, like for some reason I didn't want to play Elspeth Conquers Death in high numbers anymore. And I, I think I may only have two copies in the main deck at this point, but if I decided I only wanted one or none, then probably golden egg is the card that I replace it with. Yeah. I, I could find a cut pretty easily. I, I want to talk about spyglass a little bit more because for a while there, and I, I don't think this is an issue very much anymore, but I was having a lot of trouble against the transmogrify like turbo dream trawler decks because I could like do my thing out card advantage them, but I would just eventually lose to the dream trawlers that they had. Yep. And I was looking for a solution to that. And I, I was like, Oh yeah. Shadow spear. Right. Like I can just, you know, ECD their thing and shadow spear away their stuff. And like the life gain could help keep me in it. If they've been like attacking me early with the dream trawlers and stuff. And then I would just eventually lose like shark typhoon or whatever. Sure. That was not great, but thankfully that Jeskai deck is like not very playable. But it was very good against Green White. But Sorcerer Spyglass, I think, is just an even better uh, Shadow Spear. And the thing that you sold me on is you can just blink it to reset it. So, like, you could have it to, like, stop Luca, And then on a turn, you could just, like, you know, blink it and an ECD, have it come back on Dream Trawler and Killer Dream Trawler. I guess they could just, like, discard. But, you know, you also don't have to do it in the same turn. Right. Yeah. I, I am not losing to Dream Trawlers anymore with the deck. Spyglass okay. has has been what you needed. And the interesting thing is how important the information actually is, especially like when you're playing these matchups where you're playing around like sweepers and counter magic and you're just getting continual looks at their hand. Because even when you know you're keeping your Spyglass on the same thing, you use it as like Urza's glasses. Peak. Yeah. yeah, a little, a little <laughs> peek at their hand. So uh, the card's been good, and it it just really solidified my plan against them. And the problem you talked about was real. They could outscale you. I'm not getting outscaled anymore. And is Dream Troll an impactful card? Sure. Can I easily win with it on the battlefield for six or seven turns? Yes, I can. It's it's not hard to come over the top of it at this point. Yeah, my my issue was specifically like the the Luca version where they just put like two of them into play very early. Yep. And at that point, it's well, like if they give you enough time, obviously, like you can go way over the top of anyone. But yeah, that was kind of the situation where I was just like, Ugh, I'm just like struggling against this. And it's mopey and 
All right, I guess I'll put Shadow Spear in my deck. But yeah, this is a format where there are just better options and you can go digging for those options. And I mean, there's even like Run Afoul, right? And I was playing mm-hmm. that at first, but it's worse than Spyglass because you can trail of crumbs into it. So yeah, and I think too, if Run Afoul just became the answer, they'd be able to play around it effectively. But to your point, like getting Turbo Dream Trollered. It doesn't happen when you have a bunch of spyglasses because you get to do the Luca reset thing. And I just don't lose to that deck anymore, but you don't see much of that deck anymore. So like, that's not really my concern. I just think it's a fine plan to have against a bunch of, a bunch of stuff, including Ugin, which was a problematic card. And Ugin also showed up in this weekend as well in the hands of the ramp deck played by Emma Handy, Autumn Burchett. So that card was back in the metagame to some extent. Oh, uh, dude, I've been messing around with a, a teamer deck that I really like. Okay, similar to those no. ramp lists we saw? No. <laughs> no. Uh, okay, tell me about it. It's basically just a bunch of value stuff, no ultimatum. It's it's kind of similar to the one that Julian won the last SCG qualifier with. Okay. Whereas like Cobra, Maze Mind Tome, Ugin, Shark Typhoon, no ultimatum, some counter spells. And I think that this might actually be good. I've only played like five matches. Because uh, I didn't have a, a ton of time between like having the idea and then having to like write article and do podcasts and a bunch of other stuff. But I'm excited to keep playing with that. But like Ugin, Ugin just good, dude. It is very, very good. Powerful magic card. Uh, the world, though, where people are playing a lot of counter magic, I expected Ugin to struggle in that space, but it, it doesn't seem like that was the case. It seemed like these team or ramp decks put up good numbers, including against decks with a lot of counter magic. So. Kind of have to eat my words there. It seemed like they found a nice configuration to still get value out of Ugin. The rogue decks aren't playing as many counterspells as they should be, maybe. Like, the the Shark Typhoon ones went up to Didn't Say Please, and some of them had Essence Scatter, like, Anti-Cognition, but, you know, if you're playing, like, all the the Hedron or the Rune Crabs and Merfolk Wind Robbers, Call the Death Dweller, stuff like that, like, you don't have a lot of room for actual counterspells. I just wish we would stop playing all those cards, though. Like, I, I don't agree. understand why we keep doing that. And I, I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall. I, my article this week was about rogues and uh, comparing and contrasting the different builds that showed up this weekend. And frankly, the win rate spreads were very close amongst all the different versions, but the sample sizes were small. So of course, it wasn't meant to be a determinative look at, oh, this is the correct way, this is the wrong way. Basically, I just wanted to discuss the differences while adding a little data sprinkling on top as a little color. But continue to see a real devotion to the idea that four Ruin Crab is the correct way to do it. And I, I mentioned in this tournament, it was either four Ruin Crabs or zero Ruin Crabs with only one exception. That was Yuta Takahashi who played three Ruin Crabs. I continue to think you're just supposed to play like two Ruin Crabs, four Thieves Guild Enforcer, uh, four Soaring Thought Thief, and then more Counter Magic. I think that's what makes this deck good. It makes it well positioned and you can play these fairies type game plans very well uh, with a little bit less of the top end. Shark Typhoon, Hasn't really blown me away in the Rose deck. I, I know, like, again, it, it did fine. The win, the win rates for the Shark Typhoon versions were less than the Ruin Crab versions, but yep. it wasn't a determinative difference. It was like 6% or something like that, certainly within the range of error for the sample sizes we were dealing with. So personally, I haven't loved the play patterns for Shark Typhoons. I think they're really good at challenging Dream Trawler. And challenging planeswalkers. And I think those should both be trending down right now in the metagame. 
Yeah, the the Luris Crab ones are, you know, they definitely want to play at instant speed to some degree, but at some point they just go into kind of tap out mode. And that is definitely better against things like Rule Adventures and Rakdos. You know, you get to be proactive and you you have things that are like cheap and very impactful, right? And the Shark Typhoon one is a little bit more one-dimensional where they're playing this flash game. They're trying to basically just like answer everything that you play and win in the long game. And that doesn't necessarily pan out against a lot of these decks. Whereas the Luris deck can uh, race you rather effectively and just recur Luris and like win those games of attrition just through combat and trading. Whereas the Shark Typhoon deck just has to point like a heartless act at everything, which is just not a great plan. It's a tough so, spot to be in. I mean, they do it well because they have Into the Story, which is like the banger card of this deck for sure. And yep. it's funny to think of a world where rogues existed and Into the Story wasn't part of it. Don't know how we tricked ourselves into thinking that deck was playable because playing without Into the Story now seems absolutely preposterous to me. Well, it, I mean, I'm sure that deck is still playable, right? It's just you have a mostly better option. You don't have to play the crappy expensive cards. And now you have this deck that plays like early and long which mm-hmm. is always kind of busted in Magic. So, yeah, I mean, you cut you cut Rankle or Zerathstan or whatever for into the story, and it's like, yeah, your deck is just a, a million times better. Yeah, way better. Another thing I talked about a lot with Rogue's List is that I don't think players are oscillating between companion games and non-companion games often enough. I think it's an underused strategy. Now, you can either do it with Shark Typhoon in the main Luris in the sideboard, sideboard out your Shark Typhoons, or you can have Shark Typhoon in the sideboard and Luris and get Luris in game ones. And when you need to go to Shark Typhoons, that's the configuration I like. It seems for the most part, people just chose one lane or the other. The two exceptions were like Seth Manfield and Gab Nassif, who had access to both plans. I really like building the deck that way going forward because they do different things. They cover you in different matchups. And the ultimate version of this rogues deck is going to be just the broad fairies-esque approach to a metagame where it doesn't matter what you're doing. You have proactive plans, you have disruptive elements, and you have answers for everything, assuming your deck is built correctly on a week-to-week basis. All right, here's the thing. If you are playing Luris as your companion in game one, Presumably that means you have, you know, two Ruin Crabs, maybe some Wind Robbers. My list right now has two and two. And then your sideboard plan is like, oh, I want to go bigger. I want these Shark Typhoons. I feel like you can accomplish a lot of the same stuff with just playing Maze Mind Tome. And my main issue with that is like, if I want to board in some Shark Typhoons, that's going to cost me a lot of slots. And the Shark Typhoon doesn't necessarily want the Crabs or the Wind Robbers. Mm-hmm. But that's a, is, that's a clean swap. I mean, like if you just taking your list in particular, if you have four so, shark typhoons, you just get to drop those four cards. So that's a clean swap. But then you also have to do the normal sideboarding of like, oh, I also want to take out you know my six removal spells for the two counter spells or whatever. Of course, but no, no, I'm, I, I think I'm you saying, should be able to come to that place though if you if you have a configuration that considers this reality. I, I'm saying that you probably have too many cards that you want to bring out and not enough to bring in unless you're doing like a full transform. But even if, if you decide that, you know, Shark Typhoon is better than Luris, I feel like you can still do endgame stuff without devoting as much of your sideboard to that. Yeah, I, I don't know if I buy that. I think you can find configurations that work to 
be able to present all of these plans and you have clean swaps in and out and you don't end up with dead cards in your deck. Also, I guess it helps that my package is a little smaller. Like I, I don't play Wind Robber right now. I just have the two Ruined Crabs. So it's it's less of an impact for me to have to replace. But in general, like I'm I'm resisting because I like the idea of being able to go to Shark Typhoon. But I do agree with your point that I don't think Shark Typhoon is actually all that fantastic right now. And maybe there's just a better way to do it. And it could be Maze Mind Tome. But I think it's something we should keep in our pocket because if Dream Trawler comes back or, you know, heavy counterspell or Planeswalker focused metagames come back, I think having the option to be able to do both is a really good place to be. Uh, for the time being, though, something you're describing does sound a little bit more appealing to me. Sounds like Maze Mind Tome kind of just beats all that stuff anyway. Maze Mind Tome is a hell of a magic card. It really is. It's, Whoa. it's impressed me throughout. Whoa, can I quote you on that? I th- I'm pretty sure, <laughs> and I'm not 100% sure, so maybe you get to blow me up here, but I think when we sat down to do our M21 list, I had Maze Mind Tome on my list, and you did not, if I recall correctly. Uh, I, I think I had it in my honorable mention because I thought you would make fun of me. Okay. Well, you were wrong. I like Maze Mind Tome. It's much better than Treasure Map. Dude, I know that's, that's going to offend you. That, that, is, that is offensive. That is highly <laughs> offensive. I think you believe it, too. I just don't think you could let it stand based on principle. Treasure Map is just so much cooler in the way it plays out, though. It's a very you like, cool you magic like, card. You get the land, and then you get... Because like you want the scry early, right? Like How tempted are you to, to scry on two with a Maze Mind Tome? It's like a, a lot of the time, if you don't have like a, a great draw just rolled up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I scry a very high percentage of the time. I, I tend to burn my Maze Mind Tomes very aggressively. And if I have dead spots, I will often spend it on a scry. Uh, you know, that's not a hard and fast rule, but I, I do think I am more willing to take a scry than most players. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. But like, that's that's what you should be doing with the card, you know? And that's what Treasure Map was really good at. Yeah. Anyway, card is busted. Uh, kind of told y'all, you know. 17 years ago at the Invitational where I played for Treasure Map Red Black and you made fun of me. I guess it was only like three years ago, but it feels like 17 years ago. It really does feel like 17 years ago where you were a member of the MPL competing in the Mythic Invitational. That sounds like another universe. Dude, 2020 has been the longest decade. It really has. Yeah, Maze Mind Tome solves all problems. Obviously, I have Maze Mind Tome in my Urian deck and my Teamer deck, so... But it's not it's not like a, a pet card scenario thing, I don't think. It's just like so many of the games come down to not necessarily like strict attrition, but it's like you definitely want to be able to spend your mana and have options and extra resources and stuff like that. And then if you're playing against something like Rule, then yeah, you can just burn it really quickly and it probably doesn't matter all that much. Yeah, I've got your back here. I mean, I think this is something we talked about when we first saw the card was like the ability to mitigate the chance of missing the third land drop is tremendous to get out of your late game card advantage insurance policy that also gains you some life. It just does a bunch of things that a very specific archetype really needs to have access to if it's going to be a competitor in the modern game of magic. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the teamer deck is basically just like all value cards and it's super sweet. And then you just cap out at Ugin and a lot of people just kind of like lose to Ugin. So yeah. I, I understand why, Matt and Jacob played it in their Selesnya deck. Like, I agree with you that it's like, but you have like trailer crumbs and stuff. You don't want to blow up your own stuff, but it's probably winning the game when you cast it. So, yep. Things like that. I always like to point out the option to not cast the card and not do the thing. You could also just like play Ugin and Plus and 
make value that way. So right. if it's powerful enough, you'll find ways to not destroy your own battlefield with it. Yep, exactly. Uh, what about uh, Gruel Adventures? How much experience do you have with this post MPL thing? Against it, a good amount. Playing it, none, really. I mean, you know, that's not my style. It's not that I don't particularly like this deck. I, I do think it's strong. I think it was a very good choice for this particular event. I would just rather tune my deck to beat stuff like that. And I have been able to. I think Gruel Aggro really benefits from a lack of focus. When you need to beat this deck, it's pretty conceivable that you will do so because its two payoffs are expensive artifacts. And it's not hard for a bunch of wilts to creep back in or other means of controlling this. So I haven't been struggling against it. I'm still finding wins against it. But it's the same thing. If if you aren't accounting for this in the metagame, there's no question the cards are raw, powerful enough to go ahead and beat up on people who aren't respecting it. Yeah, I definitely agree on all counts. I have not played with it. I played with it some like immediately after the bans. And I granted it hasn't like changed much since then. So I think my experience is still relatively valid, but I've watched a lot of people stream it because it was kind of the hotness after that event. And a lot of people were like, this is really like an 11 in one deck, you know, I have to actually figure this out, but yeah, it keeps, keeps smashing people. It's, it's 11 and one. If people aren't respecting what you're capable of a hundred percent, that's, that's the way magic works. If you aren't being given proper due, you get to exploit that. And Gruel Aggro did that very, very well. Same thing Rakdos Midrange did. It just wasn't getting any respect at all. And also being fueled by the most play deck. So that's a unique scenario where it's not just like not being paid attention to, but it's being actively aided and abetted by the number one threat in the format. And yeah, that's a good circumstance for this deck to show up and do very well, which is not something I thought would happen. Yeah, so Rogues plays Ruin Crab to Dark Ritual. They're into the stories. And when Rakdos gets ruined crabbed, it is getting dark ritualed. Yeah. So I, I think that it's it's definitely like a ballsy choice to play Rakdos into a field, again, where the discourse was like all Urian because Urian is typically quite good against it. Uh, I mean, at least if you're playing like compact 60 card Urian, I think you're good against it. Once you start yeah. adding like the neutralizes and stuff, it, it gets a little bit worse. But if you have four glass caskets in in 60, you're pretty well set up to deal with Croxa and all their other nonsense. So definitely like a a pretty risky choice, but pays off because, again, the Urian decks just kind of like cannibalized each other and didn't have the tools to deal with it. And Rakdos is just pretty good against people doing fair-ish things. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm Again, sample size is way too small for definitive conclusions, but Rakdos won 70% of its matches against Azuria Syrian, and it just shouldn't. It shouldn't get to do that unless it's being given no respect whatsoever, and those decks have gotten very, very inbred, which they absolutely did, and then it turned out they didn't beat anything. Can you recall, since we started doing these pretty matchup matrix things we talked last week about a deck that had all or maybe this is going back a few weeks i think this is about omnath adventures where omnath adventures posted all green across the board nothing but winning matchups this is the first time i think i've seen nothing but losing matchups for a deck uh azorius urian posted a 25 percent win rate <laughs> and that's also it's not great the lowest win rate i've ever seen on one of these charts without question just the absolute lowest yeah uh i i definitely agree with that dude especially for you know, it wasn't the most popular deck, but a lot of people expected it to be the most popular deck and it just mm-hmm. got smashed so hard. Normally it's like 
you think about like Oko type of stuff, right? Where it's, you know, 60 to 70% of the metagame and is still winning like 55% or whatever. Right. Uh, I guess, I guess goblins didn't do that well, did it? No, it was like a 50% win rate if I recall correctly. Okay. I mean, that's still pretty good for everyone gunning for it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was like 49 or something like that, but it wasn't anywhere near 25%. I promise you that. So. Yeah, man, everyone, everyone just trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater on this one. And I don't like it. Well, I think a lot of it is probably born of these numbers. It fuels into the very hyperbolic approach we take to magic these days to see unprecedented numbers. You really want to say, okay, this is an unprecedented situation where this deck is laughably bad and people have talked themselves into it. But my experience with the deck just doesn't check those boxes. I won plenty with Azorius Urian and other versions of Urian, and it just doesn't feel like a 25% deck. It does the most powerful stuff in the format, so that means it cannibalized itself and got a little inbred, and that'll happen, but I do think there's some space for the deck to turn it around. Yeah, people look at the numbers, and even even the Matrix just says, like, Urian on it, and it's got a picture of the thing, right? And it's like, Urian equals bad. So now whenever I'm like, hey, I have this deck, I think it is good, and you know, show it to someone and they're like, it has urine in it. It's bad. <laughs> and it's like, it's 40 cards different from everyone yeah. else's decks. Like this is not the same deck. Yeah. I made a similar comment where I, I can't be held responsible for people misbuilding their decks by 60 plus cards. Like, I, I'm sorry. That's not, that's not something I'm going to take credit for. You, you can't take credit for it, but you can take the blame for it. I think that's no. how it Pass. Pass. I've taken enough blame. Honestly, I'm very willing to take blame. I'm willing to take it on the chin when I deserve it. I don't deserve it here. I'm not accepting this one. Yeah. Dude, what else? Are there any other decks? I think there are a lot of other decks, actually. Uh, And I think there's a lot to still be uncovered. I continue to be surprised by things on the ladder from time to time and see ideas that I'm like, oh, I mean, maybe. That kind of makes sense to me. I, I get what they're going for. And they feel unrefined, but... There's other good stuff lurking out there. And again, I think we have a hangover to overcome of like, oh, we found the best thing. That's it. Pack the format up. I I was doing it a little bit last week. I was ready to be like, well, here's the outer limits of the format. You will always be having to account for this. Maybe you don't though. Maybe there's enough space underneath where you can find some really powerful strategies. I think like we have to have a conversation about Golgari Adventures again, right? Like does that deck still have a place when Azorius Urian is no longer part of the format, whether it should be or not, if people don't think it should be played, can you go back to Golgari Adventures? I tend to be pessimistic about that deck. I think it has some flaws that we were too quick to write off when declaring it the best deck, but there's some place for it. It should have some metagame percentage and there's other powerful stuff too. So Tessin Champion continues to intrigue me. I think that is a card that we haven't heard the last of. Aggressive white decks. I, I, haven't, I haven't heard the first of it. Okay, sure. I mean, that's fair. Uh, It certainly hasn't broken through to the top level, but I I think it'll have a moment where it gets to if you find the right Satessan Champion decks. And there's still Doom Foretold stuff going on, which doesn't strike me as lining up great with this format, but the format changes so quickly and you could very easily find yourself in a spot where Doom Foretold makes sense. Yeah, I agree with all that. I I went down a very tiny rabbit hole uh, yesterday watching Nick Prince stream where his opponent was playing Rakdos, but had a mini sacrifice package, just like Woe Strider, Village Rights, Claim the Firstborn. And I was like, I don't know if this is actually good, but it's like kind of intriguing, you know? And I thought about it a little bit more and I was like, oh, the Akroan War. And that's a card that I think is just good already. 
And then that in combination with the sacrifice stuff, like I got to work and I built a deck and I was like, oh, this is actually not bad. So yeah, yeah, I played with your list a little bit yesterday. Uh, I thought it did a really good job in some matchups, particularly the gruel matchup. I really liked what a crow and war did. And uh, it was possible to play through spots where you weren't able to play through before. Certainly, you're still benefiting with the configuration you posted against things like Ruin Crab, charging up your Wolf Striders and your Croxes. You're always going to benefit from that. So it was intriguing. And I, I do agree with you that Crow and War has proven some worth in this format. Probably deserves another look. Play that card. What's the Test and Champion? Is that doing anything? Is that I, a thing? I this guess. is my current approach where I just put these cards together and I'm like, <laughs> is that a thing? And sometimes Ooh, it is, it turns out. Yeah. Ooh, enchantment. I kind of got burned by Satessan Champion uh, looking last season. And I mean, also, it, it wasn't like, oh, I couldn't find it. So like, I give up. But like a lot of other people tried it too. And nothing really came to fruition. And every set, I kind of keep my eyes open for random enchantments and stuff. And like, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like we're really there. Maybe one of these sets is going to have uh, something that like actually makes it a little bit more viable. But We'll see. It's definitely a powerful card. Absolutely. It's just like the surrounding stuff just does not make me happy. Yeah. The cards you're pairing with it are a little bit below rate. There's like, uh, what's the Satessan enchantment that draws a card and gives it tactics? Trample? Yeah. Satessan tactics. I don't, I don't know. I, that doesn't strike me as a constructed card. But then, like, you have moments where it's like, oh, my huge, all that glitter Satessan champion is now trampling, and that's exactly what I needed. And I drew two cards off of it, and it feels great. There needs to be a bit more consistency to these approaches, though. You're going to build like a 5-7 that I'm going to crow and wear it. I uh, did this actually yesterday. I stole an 8-10 Satessan champion with <laughs> the Crow and War, and my Crow and War wasn't good enough. They outscaled me because they drew like literally 20 cards off their other Satessan champion, which they returned with Call of the Death Dweller. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they were doing like weird storm held stuff, but they intrigued me because I went and built the deck immediately following. And I was like, well, this looks kind of powerful. So again, more powerful stuff that's lurking just below the surface. Too much nonsense, man. There's a lot of nonsense to explore, but I love that we can explore it again and not feel like a total clown. Like you only feel like a yes. half clown when, while you're doing it. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so this weekend, there's the arena open. And I don't know if this is a bug or a feature. I guess it's technically a feature, but you can play best of three on day one in addition to best of one. So not only do you have to figure out what deck to play, you have to figure out like what queue to play in first. I, I guess that's good. Like giving people more options. It seems fairly easy to like game a little bit, but I don't know. What do, what do you think about all this? Are you playing? Probably not just given the Red Bull stuff we have going on and you know, not wanting to have any distractions while that's happening. So I'm assuming well, you, can, I, you can play, you can play Saturday. Yeah, but we're going to be occupied on Sunday. So it's like, even if I do well on Saturday, am I going to have time to finish my games on Sunday? No, of course not. Okay. So <laughs> I, I, I think I could skip this one pretty safely then. I, I, I don't know. We'll see what Saturday brings and whether I feel like sitting down to play some magic you, you, for a while. You still get prizes on Saturday, right? Yeah, but they're not good. Like all the equities tied up in day two. I don't know. I, I I doubt I'll play. If I did, I would just play best of three. Like best of one, there's a part of me that thinks you could do something to get an edge in best of one, but it's also really painful to play. And I don't enjoy it all that much. And I also think a lot of my personal skill edge and a lot of good player skill edges in general are tied up in sideboarding. And 
suboptimal players are not as good at sideboard plans and doing the correct thing in postboard games. So giving up that edge seems not good if you just want to leverage some play skill advantage and quickly make your way on to day two. So I would just be playing best of three. Uh, well, you're 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 not necessarily giving up any sort of advantage, right? If everyone who is playing in the best of three queue is like fairly competent. Yeah, but that's not going to be the case. I don't mean to say that like rudely, but the field, the potential pool of arena players is too large at this point for everyone to be involved in best of three to be competent. It's not like a Magic Online premiere event where you can literally name every single person in it. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's just too big of a field. But like, who who is going to be a player that you know who is going to purposefully play best of one besides me? I don't know. There's there's other weirdos like you out there who will convince themselves that they've cracked the best of one format. Why are you playing best of one? I ain't got time, man. <laughs> Just too busy. That's it. Well, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm busy, but I don't know. If, if I had to play like seven best of three matches, then dude, it's too much. I don't think you do. Isn't it just like... Oh, is it shorter? I'm not going to say for sure. I, I think it's shorter, but Ooh. I don't have the information in front of me. For some reason, four wins is stuck in my head. I don't know if that's correct or not. That's a little bit more intriguing. I did not know about that. I just knew that there were two cues. All right, let's look. Let's, let's do the weekly thing where we have to go traverse these websites that are impossible to make our way through and try and understand exactly how this event works. Yeah, I was thinking that if you join the best of three queue, you you're just locked into dedicating like so much more time for basically the same result. But if it's fewer match wins required or like you play fewer matches total, then that's great. Okay, best of one you play. uh, This is interesting. Uh, Now I want to expand this discussion. (laughs) Best of one you play till seven wins or three losses. Yep, which is the same as what it was last time, I think. Best of three. You play to four wins or one loss. Oh, also, that, that's pretty gross. Also, the gem prizes are dramatically different. Dramatically. And I don't think the entry fee is different. Nope. The entry fee is the same. So, okay. 4,000 gems to enter. Best of one, three wins, you get 400 gems. Four wins, you get 800 gems. Five wins, you get 1,200 gems. Six wins, you get 1,600 gems. So you lose half of your entry fee, no matter what. And seven wins, you get 2,000 gems, but you get like another 2,000 down the road. So that's when you make your entry fee back, only if you qualify. In best of three, one win is 1,000 gems. Two wins is 2,500 gems. Three wins is 5,000 gems. So you've actually turned a profit at 3-0. Four wins is 5,000 gems plus qualification for day two. So this is actually pretty interesting. There's there's a lot of give and take here. It's not just as simple as shorter time requirements. I, I think there's a lot of EV calculations that probably have to be done if you want to do the optimal thing. I certainly don't care about doing the optimal thing. I want to do the thing I'll enjoy the most. So I'm going to best of three probably no matter what. But if you're really trying to squeeze out the most value, you better get your calculator out and figure out exactly which one of these benefits you the most. Well, I also don't have time to do EV calculations, man. Okay, so then uh, just do whatever you feel like. Listen no, to your so, heart. That's my advice. So based on this, I don't like it being single limb for best of three, but I feel like that tournament structure is just so much better than the the best of one stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know. I guess 
guess if I were going to play, and I might play, we'll see. We have a rehearsal on Saturday at some point that I should show up for probably. So got to got to try and do that for sure. Uh, but yeah, like four best three matches. That's not bad. That's way better than playing like nine best of ones, I think. I think so. Yeah. And probably. you just, you, well, you'll certainly feel more in control of your outcome, I think, when you're playing best of three. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a more enjoyable experience as a whole, I think. But it also, I, like, I'm, I'm still just very tempted by, like, who in their right mind is going to join best of one, right? And it's like... <laughs> you're relying on everyone else just being disgusted by the idea of playing this format, so you're going to go ahead and hop in. Yeah. I, that did not work out well uh, last time when I played best of one, but, like, you know, obviously it was a little different. Yeah, it was historic last time, and that was uh, that was something. Historic best of one, not my favorite format, turns out. Yeah, I played, like... Mono white auras and then uh, wilderness reclamation, and yeah, neither of those are great in best of one. So it was it was also just not fun. Yeah, I played and lost with uh, everything, so it really <laughs> I don't even have deck selection to blame. I just lost a bunch, and I agree it was not fun. All right, I endorse I endorse best of three. I yeah. think it's probably going to be harder, maybe. I just think the player pool is too big to make those kind of conclusions. And I, I don't know that all of the less experienced players are. I, I know that's the narrative, like new players to arena play best of one is what we say. I don't know. That's going to track for this event. Dude, look, look at the deck list they published where all the people like don't have sideboards or whatever. Okay. I just don't even believe in those deck lists anymore. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to acknowledge them as a real thing. I, dude, I honestly think Robo Rosewater made those deck lists. They are so silly. So beyond silly. There's, there's no other plausible explanation. Like Gleamax has just taken over. I just think their algorithm has to be broken. Like it's returning bad results and not actually getting six win decks. Cause some of these decks are, there was 60 planes. Like uh, yeah. that's it. That yeah, closes yeah. the discussion. Something's wrong. It, right. 60 planes did not win. Yes, I agree. Anyway, a lot of stuff to look forward to this weekend. And if you are playing the open, you have basically no reason to have uh, us on in the background at the very least. So agreed. If you don't have two monitors or whatever, just listen to our voices like you're doing right now. We know you want to. Uh, what are you going to play if you do play? Or what would you play if you're going to play? I'm, I would play Selesnia. I just like where I have all the matchups right now. Am I saying with a high degree of confidence it, it's the best deck? No, that's not my intention here. I just think I have my sideboarding figured out and I have plans against the entire format and like where I'm sitting right now. So I think you could do much worse than playing Selesnia this weekend. Okay, well, uh, hot take on my end. I'm going to say that Rogues is probably the deck to play. Okay. I think that obviously people are gunning for it, and it just doesn't matter. Just play your two Klings main deck or whatever, so you're good against the mirror. Maybe three Klings now. And, you know, people who are playing main deck escape stuff and just, like, have good plans for people, play well, don't play Shark Typhoon, etc., Rakdos is tempting because I like the deck. Teamer is tempting, but I would have to work on it a little more. And what I should really do to put my money where my mouth is is play Urian, which I might do. I might run a queue with that. Okay. Yeah, I I think there's a bunch of reasonable choices this weekend. And you will benefit from knowing your deck well, having good sideboard plans, and playing good magic. It, it sounds almost like a standard from two years ago where these are the things that we're now focused on again. So 
get in that mindset again, where your plans are more about how am I setting up my deck than have I found the broken thing? And am I ready for the mirror match? And Gruul is not bad. Last couple times I played Historic, I was playing Gruul. Obviously, it's a little bit different, but I'm not I'm not completely anti-Gruul, just for the record. Anyway, uh, every week we solicit the fine folks in our Discord for questions. Last week we didn't do a question because we didn't like any of them. Yeah, questions were not good enough. We are, we are harsh week, judges of questions. This week, folks stepped their game up. Agreed. Very good questions. De- definitely could have answered a lot of these. The one that I want to answer, you should actually read this because I closed Discord. <laughs> okay. Well, I got your back. And the question this week comes from Booch138. And Booch would like to know, did you both vote yet? And I can say with resounding resignment to my fate, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, have, I have voted. Here in Washington, voting is easy. We do entirely voting by mail. It's fantastic. The fact that this is not what we do in every state is honestly a travesty. It's, it just shows that democracy as we run it is not meant to be representative. It's based on systems of oppression and keeping voices away from their rights to representation. And y'all should be out in the streets demanding the right to vote by mail because there's no excuse for it. It has worked beautifully in Washington it worked beautifully again. My ballot showed up, filled it out, sent it out. We're done. That's it. I am confident my vote will be counted. Uh, good game. Yeah. I voted uh, twice by mail when I lived in Washington and then uh, voted by mail again here in Virginia. And I, I just recommend it. I don't know. I, I, I'm I, curious as to why people would not do it. I mean, obviously, there's like a lot of stuff, you know, people worried about their ballots not getting counted. And I Totally get that. That is a very real concern, especially at this point. But it's it's just so simple and easy, and I love it. Yeah, it needs to become widespread, and it should be very high on our list of things to do to try and restore some semblance of democracy to our lives. Because it's not doing so well right now, is democracy. Uh, I don't really feel like my voice is being heard. I know a lot of people are disillusioned. Uh, I didn't vote for a large portion of my life. I get- Me too how you get to that place. And, you know, it's, it's really easy to just scream at people. You have to vote. You have to do this. And I will tell you that when people did that to me, I didn't listen. So I'm not going to do that. I, I don't think it's correct to kind of browbeat people right now. What I'm going to do instead is tell you what changed my mind. And it's the vulnerable people in my friends and family groups just telling me that they needed this from me and telling me that this was important to them and telling me that it shows that I am listening to their voices and concerned about the plight that is very real for them. You know, the, the rights that non-males tend to lose should this election break a certain way and the rights that our gay friends tend to have taken away in moments where the people in office don't want their best interests reflected this stuff matters. And it's enough for me that these people have asked me to support their interests. And I hear all the criticisms about our democracy. I agree with the vast, vast majority of them. I often do not feel like my desires are being reflected. And I don't feel like the desire of the people is being reflected most of the time. But this is the best I can do in this particular system. 
Now, I'm not saying this is the optimal system for change, and certainly most of my effort should be focused on other methods of bringing about change. And I respect the people who devote themselves very hard to those pathways. I just think it's so low cost for me to vote that I'm I'm willing to do it here, and I would encourage other people to do the same. Yeah, cosine. Man, what, what do I talk about first? So when I was a fairly young like really, really shitty kid. I remember uh, a good friend of mine like talking to me about voting. And I don't know if it was, she was just asking me if like I was registered to vote or if I was going to vote or whatever. And I just like, you know, laughed at her because I'm a giant asshole. And she was just like, you know, why, why is this funny to you? And I was like, well, you know, whoever has been president or whatever has not changed my life at all. And I think about that now, like, you know, 10 plus years later, and it's true, it was a true statement, right? But like, that's not the point. Right. And it it certainly speaks to just like, you know, the uh, the amount of privilege that you and I both have, right? It's like, we're, we're just like set up to succeed or fail upward or whatever. And it, it the stuff basically just like doesn't affect us at all. But I, I didn't have a lot of friends that would like, you know, guilt trip me into voting for their sake, or even just like have a conversation with me about it. It was probably more just like, you know, giving me some side eye and just being like, look, I know you care about us. I hope you figure this out. And eventually I did. Uh, once, once I realized that the whole thing should not be about me and my interest because I was fine, then it all kind of fell into place. Yeah, like most things in life, empathy will get you a long way. And just understanding the plight of others is basically how I ended up in the position I'm in now. What do you say to arguments about perpetuating the system by voting? And I mean, like, certainly there is a stance that dramatic change is needed. Yes. And I, I think the usual talking points I hear from people who are abstaining from voting in this situation, who I would term as, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for this. I, I think there are people who are empathetic and interested in the plight of others who are not voting in this, this election. I, I think they have the best interest of others at heart, but they see maybe destabilization and a refusal to participate in the system as the way to accelerate the actual dramatic change that is needed. And putting Joe Biden into office might be a new thing, but ultimately the plight of the people who have suffered for years under both Democrats and Republicans is not going to change. The black community in particular comes to mind as a community that has continued to struggle regardless of who is president because their best interest is not looked out for. Correct. So I, I think that's where the stance of these people comes from. And I get it to some extent. I, like I, I, that's kind of how I felt for years and years when I didn't vote. Is it just it wasn't going to do enough? But I, again, it comes down to like a cost benefit analysis. And I, I don't think the benefit of failing to participate is greater than the benefit of participation at this moment. That's where I've fallen on it. And I respect people who are coming to an opposite conclusion when they're doing so in good faith and when they still do have the best interests of others in their hearts, like that's the, where they're trying to get to. They just disagree on how to get there. I think I owe people like that respect 
I do disagree though. And I was curious how you fa- how you feel about those type of stances. Yeah, I think I think I have a reasonable answer to this. So uh, I, I don't remember what your exact language was where, you know, like you, you shipped off your ballot and in resignation or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel, too, where it's like this. This is important. This is an important first step. This does not solve any problems. It just makes things, you know, less bad. And we still have a lot of work to do. And I think that abstaining to vote, I like, sure, I I can see how someone can get to that point of view, same way I can see how people would put four neutralizes in their 80 card Jurgen deck or whatever. I don't, I don't think it's right because if your goal is like, oh, the system is busted. So, you know, you're, you're like abstaining to like stick it to them or whatever. And it's like, that's, that's what a lot of people want you to do is to not vote so that they can continue to do like evil and messed up shit. And so that's not good. And also you abstaining is not going to fix the system. And maybe you think that voting is not going to fix the system, but it's certainly going to help a lot more than not doing it. And in, in the vein of me feeling like this is the first step, it's just like, all right, stem the bleeding. And what I think, you know, like I, I'm going to try and do is just like focus more on like local elections and just like smaller stuff and just try and like get the shitheads out of office. And then just, you know, slowly but surely we can take up like more and more of a majority. You know what I mean? And then at that point, it's just like you can't, have someone like Biden be the face of the DNC or whatever. You just can't, it's not going to fly. And I think that that is how you make change. And it's going to take, you know, 12 plus years, obviously, but like, I, I don't see any other way to get to that point. Yeah. Short of open revolution, which, uh, well, yeah, you know, whatever, we don't need to go down this road. It's, uh, it's the questions that I've been pondering this whole time. I just wanted to take a moment to, I don't know, kind of give them some credence and ultimately acknowledge them and explain why I turned out on the other side of things and I'm willing to vote in this election. 2020 is Operation Eliminate Some Shitheads. The most vile shitheads have to go. And then down the road, we will work on actual representative government that serves our interests but for now, protect the people who are vulnerable. And I, I do think this is the best way to do so. Yeah, I mean, like, do you do you have a long-term plan? I mean, like, I, I've I've thought about it. I've been talking to a few friends about it. And it's just like, this is, this is the only thing that seems reasonable to me is just like, you know, trying to focus more on smaller stakes and like becoming more of a majority. I think that we need to embrace the particular instances of our will being reflected and we need to give more opportunities for our will to be reflected at smaller levels before anyone takes it seriously at a larger level and we shouldn't have to do that it like it breaks my soul to some extent to stay that's what we have to go through in order to get people to respect basic human decency and basic human rights that all of us should have access to it we should have come over this hurdle by now, but unfortunately we haven't. 
And I, I understand when I say that, the rage that builds inside me where people are just like, eh, just burn it down. Who cares? I, I get it. I really, really do. And some days I am right there with you. But I, I think the more small races you instill politicians who are actually capable of reflecting the will of the people, the more commonplace those ideas will become. It has to start at smaller levels and then get larger. And that is insanely frustrating to even say out loud, but. Yeah. So I, I actually never thought about it in exactly those terms, but now thinking about stuff, you know, as far as like weed becoming legal or in uh, the case of police reform and like reading about how I think it was Denver who would now like screen the uh, emergency calls. And it's like, if someone is having a mental health crisis, they have like a separate entity set up to send people out to them rather than yep. sending police. And it's just like, start small, start like that. Like maybe Denver starts it. And then that becomes statewide and then another state adopts it. And suddenly it's just like, Oh, this is the thing that we do now. And it's right. just like, this is normal. Yeah. Like North Dakota, you're the last one who's not on board. Damn it. You know, like you, you better change this. Right. Yeah, uh, but like at the same time, I'm sure you understand why people are outraged that we have to normalize the idea of human decency. Like that's a preposterous yeah. place for our world to be in. Dude, I'm mad all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like the right approach to uh, 2020. Just always be angry. And it is draining and exhausting. Uh, I am hopeful, though, that we get some good news over the next couple of weeks. And I am hopeful that everyone will help participate in creating some good news, if only for a moment, and then it's right back to work. Because remember, I, I am, if I'm voting for someone who's not going to reflect my interests, then I need to work to make sure other things are starting to shape the process of reflecting my interests. I don't get to cast my vote and be done with it because this is a risk mitigation technique. It's not an answer. And that means you have to work for the answers. Yeah, this is step one for me. Agreed. And I don't know, we'll, we'll see what, what opportunities pop up for me to implement step two down the line. I have no idea exactly what that's going to look like, but we'll could you out. see yourself holding local office someday? I think I have too many skeletons in my closet, but I think that, <laughs> I think that I, I might be good at it. It's entirely possible. I think the skeletons in your closet thing is only a deal breaker if you make it one. If you accept who you are and the things you've done, I, I think people relate to that. And there's there's nothing that can't be forgiven given that you've grown as a person. And I think you have shown that growth. So I wouldn't let skeletons in the closet be disqualifying. I, I do think there is it just it just, makes it, it just makes it just makes it risky, right? It's like sure. you know, I'm gonna try and have to like sell myself to to donors and stuff, and they're just gonna be like you know, yo, is this going to come back to bite us? And I'll, I'll be like, nah, nah, you're, you're good, you know? But as far as like the the schmoozing, the talking, whatever, I, I think that I could, but I also think that it's, I don't know, it's it should should not be a, a white person's job to speak for marginalized people. Sure, you know? I, I think that's a really good take. I always think in these moments when you're thinking about politician skeletons in the closet, uh, my... I guess it's not quite my hometown. I grew up in a super small town, but we merged with a slightly larger small town, our school districts. So I kind of also see that town as part of my hometown. But this town in particular had a mayor who was, I think he was 20 when he was elected as mayor. I knew him in college. He was, I think, a year younger than me. 
And I only vaguely knew him at college, but I just knew him as the guy who got arrested with a lot of mushrooms on campus. And the next year I heard he was mayor of my old hometown. So it's interesting to see how that path can change very quickly. But for local elections, it's like if you're just an honest person and going door to door, a lot of times those things don't matter all that much. People are willing to accept you for your faults. And maybe it does disqualify some of the larger positions, but I just wouldn't let it, if it's something you care about, I wouldn't let it stop you. No, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, the, the problem is I know, so even, even with like magic or anything in life, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, if I had, you know, like $2,000 in my bank account, I'd just be happy. Right. And then I get to $2,000 right. and I'm like, well, if I just had $5,000 yeah. in my bank account, I'd be happy. Yeah. And same thing with magic, right? It's like top eight of PTQ, I'd be happy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like, get to the point where it's like, oh, I, I win a pro tour and I'm just like, I'm still not happy. God damn it. Like what, what is happening? This is, this is just like how I'm built. And I don't think that I could do local office and then just be like, all right, I'm, I'm happy doing this. Yep. You know, you would look at state assembly and then this would happen. And then this would, and next thing you know, you're running for president, president Jerry T. Well, that, that would not happen. But at, at some point, you know, I, I feel like the skeletons would get me or I would I would blow it or something. Or at the point where I'm running for president, I'm I just got to assume that I'm very corrupt at that point. <laughs> that's, that's the only way to get there most of the time. So you're not wrong. Right. I mean, it's like if I were a billionaire, it's like, am I corrupt? Probably. Yes. Right? Yes. Very good chance. Well, now I'm depressed. <laughs> I don't want to talk about politics anymore. We're supposed to be talking about magic. How did we end up here? All right. Uh, tune in to Red Bull Thing this weekend. I'll, I'll tweet a time once I have it, maybe. Game. Game. Good luck.